Loving Father, we ask that as we come to your word and you tell us things that we need to hear, we pray that we would love what you say and listen, learn and follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now more than ever, marriage matters. And I'm not just talking about what the church thinks, because it seems that our society now thinks that marriage matters as well. Back before I was born, a man and a woman didn't really live together unless they were married. But if they did, they were said to be living in sin. And the kids were born out of wedlock. And before the pill and easy access to abortions, many unplanned pregnancies actually led to short-notice weddings and even some white dresses with baby bumps. But then, almost 50 years ago, uh, there was a change in Australia to our law and it was now possible for a couple to divorce each other without having to prove that the other person was at fault. And so broken marriages became more and more common. Another thing happened at the same time, and that is that de facto marriages gained special rights. And so you didn't need to go to all of the trouble to get married in order to have a legal relationship. It seemed that marriage was headed towards extinction. But then about 10 years ago, everything changed. Suddenly, everybody's talking about marriage. Suddenly, there was talk about how those who couldn't legally get married could have the law changed so they could. And so marriage equality became a thing. Australia voted yes, and then people, two people, of any gender could then be married to each other. And in this time, we've seen marriage suddenly matter again. But it doesn't mean that people were lining up to go to the altar for a church wedding. Uh, they're fairly rare these days. I've been at this church eight years, and I've only married three couples inside this building in that whole time. Uh, one out in the grass as well during COVID. I've done a couple of other weddings at other buildings, but... There's only one person I actually didn't already know from amongst the church that I married. It doesn't mean that weddings aren't popular and aren't common. It's just it's the civil, civil celebrants that are doing all the work. They run off their feet with photographers and videographers and florists and wedding cars and wedding combis, of course. And it seems that marriage now does matter. But what is marriage really about? How do you define marriage? What should happen in marriage? What shouldn't happen in marriage? What should marriage be like? What should marriage not be like? Well, to work out what marriage should or shouldn't be, it, like all things, needs to pass the pub test, it seems. That's the way we work out ethics in our modern society. If a bunch of people in the pub reckon it's okay, then it's okay. And if it's not okay, it's not okay. That's morality in modern Australia. So what does the pub test say about divorce? Well, if your marriage isn't happy, you should be able to get, to get divorced. What does the pub test say about same-sex marriage? Well, if two people of the same gender love each other, then they should be allowed to get married like anyone else. What does the pub test say about an adult having sex with a teenager? Well, it doesn't matter how much they feel they love each other, it's just not on. What does the pub test say about polygamy? 
Well, it doesn't matter how many people you love, you can only get married to one of them at the time. That's the pub test. And so how do they determine what is moral and what is not moral? How do they work out what is right and what is wrong? Well, it's the vibe of it. It's the constitution. It's Marbo. It's justice. It's law. It's the vibe. And, you know, that's the way it works in Australia. But if you happen to disagree, then watch out. Things we once thought were immoral are now celebrated. And in the years to come, it's likely that the High Court of the pub test will change its mind again. What's immoral today will be celebrated and paraded. And our views of 10 years ago will be dug out and we will be, they will be used against us. So what is the truth about marriage then? Is it actually possible to understand what marriage really should be like? Well, if only we could hear from the person who invented it. If only he was able to actually tell us what he thought marriage was like and what it should be done in it. Well, turns out we can. God made humans, God made marriage, and he's written it down for us in the Bible by his Holy Spirit. We're going to spend, seven, uh, we're going to spend three weeks on chapter 7. Today, next Sunday, and the Sunday afterwards. And it's a bit of a a deep look at what the Bible teaches us about marriage. We will see things like sex and singleness, desire and divorce, and it's pretty frank and honest, I've got to say, and when we dig deep, I think you might see some surprises. Today we're going to look at just nine verses. We advertised that we'd look at 16, but I ran out of time when I was preparing. You didn't want me to go for all 16 today because dinner may well have been supper. But we'll look at the ones from verse 10 onwards next week. So trust me, we'll get there eventually. But we're going to look at 9 today. Because you know what we're doing. We're looking at 32 weeks through all of 1 Corinthians. And we're up to week 13 this week. Uh, we are looking at the next little bit of the next little bit. And this is where we're up to. Uh, last week, we saw a lot about sexual immorality and the dangers of it. Remember the verses, how it ended? It said... Chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realise that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honour God with your body. If you missed last week, have a listen to it online, download the podcast I think it's worth looking at in detail. But the key message in it all was this. Sexual sin is really serious. And that's because sex isn't just a physical thing like eating food. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. And verse 18, as we've seen, says that sexual sin is like no other sin because it's a sin against our own body. And because a Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it means that sexual sin impacts the whole body of Christ, the whole church. So who you have sex with impacts others. And that's why the simple remedy last week was this. Run from sexual sin. Just like when you're chased by an angry dog, run for your life. That's the way the previous chapter ended. It talked a lot about what happens when sex goes badly and the impact upon others. But today, as we get to chapter 7, we swing into the positive. And that's where marriage fits in. 
today we're going to see that God made marriage and marriage is good. And it all starts here at the start of our passage, chapter 7, verse 1, which says, Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Last week, like last week, Paul, who wrote this letter, is quoting back to them the questions that they've asked him. It's kind of like he's got a question time and he's reading it out. And they've said, is it good to abstain from sexual relations? And he says, yes. And that kind of makes sense because he just told them to run away from sexual sin, right? And so the best way to avoid sexual sin is to avoid sex, right? Well, yes. But we actually need to dig into this first just a little bit deeper and we need to get just a little bit nerdy. So buckle up, let's go for a bit of a deep dive. Because in the New Living Translation that we use in our church here, if you look at it, there's a little footnote, there's a little letter A, and it goes down to the bottom and it says, the Greek says, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, end quote. That is literally what the words in the Greek say. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. What does it mean to touch a woman? Well, most Bibles think it's just an old-fashioned way to talk about sex, which it is. And so our, our translations are great. But what if the word touch actually meant just a little bit more than a general word for sex? What if it was just a little bit more specific? Well, the reason we pay lots of money for commentaries is because the nerds do a lot of hard work. And they have gone through, these guys that I've been reading, Ros, uh, uh, Rosner and Kiampa, and they looked at all the times this word touch appeared in all of the Greek books and stuff in the first century. And they discovered a few things about this word touch in that context. The first thing, it's only a bloke who touches a woman. So it's not a kind of a, a, a thing that women would touch a man in that way. But more than that, the word touch seems to be more of a kind of crude, blokey, male-focused, non-relational way of describing sex. So for a man to touch a woman is, in a sense, a man to have sex with her in such a way that objectifies her. And so instead of the word touch, we might use the word, well, you can think of a word that you might like to put in there, screw or something like that, whatever it is you might think. I wouldn't normally say in a sermon, but it's kind of a way that when you were said, you'd go, whoa, Paul, what are you saying? But it's that idea of objectifying a woman when a man has sex with her. Now, is that just the same as having sexual relations? Well, yes, but it's a bit more specific. And if that's the case, then what it seems to be more talking about here than anything is objectified sex, non-relational sex, sex that's just physical. And that fits in really well with what's been happening in the previous chapter. He's just talked about that. And so, of course, it's good for a man not to touch a woman because that objectifies the woman and goes against everything that God wants for sex. Because, like he's just said, sex is not just a physical thing like eating and going to the toilet. It's not like that. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's a relational thing. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. And so it's not good for a man just to use a woman to get sexual pleasure. But does that mean we shouldn't have sex at all anywhere ever? No, not really. <laughs> And that makes more sense as we see the verses that follow. Because we can see that sexual desire is made by God and is to be used, by God, used as God designed it by us. 
And we see this in verse 2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And so to avoid Christians relieving their sexual desire the wrong way, Christians should use it the right way. And the right way is for it to be used in marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what the word have means in verse 2. Sex is for a husband and a wife in marriage. But did you see what he said about who has who? He didn't just say each man should have his own wife. What else did he say? He said each woman should have her own husband. Now that is very countercultural for the first century. I mean, in our culture, it's countercultural to say that marriage is for a man and a woman only, but that's another thing. But what is so countercultural here is that it speaks of both men and women in equal terms. That's not how marriage worked in the first century. The man was the boss, and so he could demand whatever he wanted from anyone under his roof. And it often meant that he would demand sex from his household slaves. But that's not the way that Christian relationships should be like. Because here we read that a woman should have her own husband. And this was seriously radical for the first century. But that's the difference that comes from knowing Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Have a look at verse 3. The husband should fulfil his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfil her husband's needs. What's so special about that? Well, that would have also come across as weird in the first century. And that is because, from what I've read, sex in marriage was usually only for procreation. Marital sex was primarily for having babies. In first century Rome, they didn't have sex with each other as married couple for pleasure. It was for procreation. So where did they get their sexual pleasure? Pretty much everywhere else. They'd have sex with their slaves, sex with prostitutes, sex with anyone. Well, anyone except their husband or wife, it seems. Now, that's odd, isn't it? You can't imagine going to a wedding and then knowing that the couple's just going to have sex because they're having a child, if they do, and eventually... Really? That just doesn't work. That was the first century. It's crazy. Which is why it's so radical for Paul to tell the Corinthians to have sex with their spouse and to do it for fun. That's what he's saying. He's saying married couples should have sex for fun. Husbands, fulfil your wives' sexual needs. Wives, fulfil your husbands' sexual needs. Enjoy sex with your spouse, but only them. Because that's the way that God made it. And it's the way we're supposed to enjoy it. But it gets even more countercultural. Buckle up, verse 4. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Both wife and husband give authority of their body to the other person. 
Now, it wouldn't have been that radical if the Bible, if the Bible said here that the wife had to give her body to her husband. It's like, yeah, that happens for everybody. But for the husband to give his body to his wife, it's like, are you crazy? Nobody does that. This is the first century Rome. Are you crazy? Friends, this is the dignity that knowing Jesus brings to women. And this is the dignity that knowing Jesus brings to men. And it's the dignity that knowing Jesus brings to marriage. When it comes to sex, they love and serve and give equally to each other. The authority of the husband's body belongs to the wife. And the authority of the wife's body belongs to the husband. But have a careful look. Can you see what it didn't say? You might think, how can I know what it didn't say? I can only know what it did say. Well, you can. It didn't say that the wife can take authority over her husband's body. And it didn't say that the husband can take authority of his wife's body. What it is, is an invitation to give, not to take. An invitation to give, not to take. The only right a husband has is to give to his wife. Which means it's totally wrong for a husband to demand sex from his wife. And it's totally wrong for a wife to demand sex from her husband. We're not allowed to take but we are allowed to give. We're supposed to give, in fact. And not only is that healthy, it is enjoyable. And it creates the most beautiful environment for fulfilling and pleasurable sex. And this mutually consenting marital sex it isn't just some sort of icing on the cake. It's actually something that the married couple need to be actively giving to each other and not withholding. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, when a husband or wife deprives their spouse of sex, it can actually cause Satan to tempt them because they don't have enough self-control. And so the Apostle Paul says the only reason you should have a break from being available for have sex with your spouse is when you decide together to give yourself more completely to prayer. I'm not exactly sure what the situation or scenario is there, but it seems special, unusual. But it does show us that sex in marriage is good and important and keeping sexually active with our spouse is something that will help us resist temptation. And so we see that sex is marriage is good and important. That's how God designed sex. That's how God designed marriage. And as we think about all that, I hope you can see that God is not anti-sex. Can you see that? People who say, oh, God, the Bible is just anti-sex. It's like rubbish. Have you read the Bible? Have a look at how positively God talks about marriage, how positively God talks about sex how positively God talks about women. God is very pro-sex. But he wants us to use sex the way he designed it. But what about people who are not married? 
We've heard all this talk about what it means for husbands and wives. What about people who are single or widowed or divorced? Well, that's where verse 7 comes in. But just before that, we read in verse 6, he says, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul says this word about marital sex is a concession, not a command. Now, everything in 1 Corinthians is, uh, is the word of God, right? To be listened and obeyed. But I think what he's kind of saying here is it's, this is sort of in the wisdom kind of world. Wise words about marriage to take very, very seriously. It's God's word and it's true, but it's sort of less of an official command and more of a concession. And that is because, and we get to verse 7, it seems, well, he says, I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Paul says all these things about sex, even though he's not married himself. And the fact he's not married is he thinks it's actually really good. And he says, I really, I really wish all of you were not married like I am, because it's really, really good to be single, he says. He wishes everyone was single. And he thinks that because he knows that being single has special benefits. And those special benefits are to him a special gift. But what is this special gift he talks about? Is it the gift of celibacy forever, from, from birth to death? Well, not necessarily. In fact, I read this week that some people think it's likely that Paul was originally married because basically all Pharisees and rabbis were married. But now he's not. So perhaps he's been widowed. It's speculation, but yeah, they've got a bit of a point there. So maybe he did know a thing or two about marriage after all, even though he wasn't married at the time. And if that is actually the case, and we're sort of basing something on a possibility, but then it would mean that his special gift here is, is not celibacy, but it's, it's the ability to be content in his situation. It's a gift. He's saying, hey, I'm single now, and I'm happy with that. And I'm okay with that. And God's made me okay with that. And look at all the special opportunities I've got to go with it. In fact, I wish you all were because it's so much easier, to be perfectly honest, if that's what, in fact, he's saying. So we can see here that this is a gift, that singleness is a gift. And it's a gift of a situation that is contentment. Being single is a positive thing. Have a look at verse 8. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. Being single is a positive thing. And so if God has given you the ability to be content with being single, then that's a special gift, that contentment. And as Paul saw it, there are many good reasons to remain unmarried. And we've got to make sure that we see singleness in the same way that Paul did. We should value and esteem those of us who are not married. It is a great thing. And if you're single, then your contentment in your situation is something we thank God for. And it's a special gift to you, which means it's a special gift to us. And as we stop and think about that, we need to recognise there are many times as a church 
where we have not encouraged and esteemed our single people. And for that, I am sorry. We are sorry. No matter what your situation, we want to value you and encourage you. And so if you're married or single, whether you've got kids or not, whether you're a widow or a divorcee, no matter what your situation might be, we want to encourage you and we want to value you. Because the Lord has put you in this situation and we want you to take full advantage of that special gift for your sake and for ours. And it means for our single friends in church, we want you to feel content if you're single. We want you to feel content. Because indeed, as one of my single friends once told me, we're all going to be single in heaven, so some of us are getting used to it now. But what if you don't have that special gift? What if you have sexual desires and you feel the need to properly deal with them? Here's the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, verse 9. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Marriage is the right context for sexual activity. Every other context is wrong. And so he's basically saying, if you can't control yourself and you can get married, then get married. Because if you don't have the special gift of contentment, of, of managing your sexual desire, then you should get married so you don't sin. Because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. But that advice doesn't apply to everybody. Because some of us have a sexual desire but are unable to get married. And if that's you, then what should you do? Well, the word of God is clear. You must not have sex. You must not commit sexual immorality simply because you're not married. If you're not married and you can't get married, you cannot have sex with anyone. Which means that if you have sexual desires and you're single, you mustn't have sex with anyone. And even if the sexual desire is strong, God says to you, run away from sexual immorality. Run away from sexual immorality. And that is true for men who have a strong desire to have sex with a woman. And it's true for women who have a strong desire to have sex with a man. But it's also true for people who are same-sex attracted. If you have a sexual attraction towards someone of the same sex, the Bible says clearly that you are not to act upon it. No matter how you feel, the Bible says that a man must not have sexual relations with another man and a woman must not have sexual relations with another woman. And so if you have an unwanted same-sex attraction, the Bible says you've got to trust God and you've got to not have homosexual sex. Now, I realise what I'm saying right now and being beamed out to the internet and everything is fairly controversial. 
especially in this week that Sydney World Pride 2023 kicks off. But God's word is clear and it is good for us all. As far as God's concerned, nobody should act upon their sexual desires if it means that doing it brings about sexual immorality. So if you're married, right? You're married and you're attracted to somebody who's not your spouse. You must not act upon your desire and have sex with that other person who you're not married to. Well, let's say that you're single and you're attracted to a a person of the opposite sex and, and you're not married to them yet, then you're not to act upon that desire by having sex with that person. Or, or let's say that you're attracted to somebody of the same sex. You must not act upon that desire by having sex with that person. The same thing applies to equally to all three situations. The Bible doesn't speak against the attraction It speaks against the action. It speaks against acting upon it. And it's the same no matter what attraction you have for whoever. We must not act on improper sexual attraction. The only person to have sex with is the person you're married to. And if you're not married yet, don't have sex with anyone. But when it comes to same-sex attraction, this has become particularly controversial. We know of techniques that are being used to try and cure people from unwanted homosexual behaviour. And these so-called conversion therapies have caused grief, especially to those who've gone against, had these therapies against their will. Now, even though I'm not aware of any religious organisation actually doing the kinds of things that conversion therapies are talked about in the media, I still think it's right for us to ensure that people don't get forced into this kind of treatment. But as everybody's talking about it, we need to make sure that governments don't overreach. In Victoria right now, a law has been made that prevents a minister praying with a person in their church about an unwanted same-sex attraction, even if that person asked for it. So if I was in Victoria and you came up to me and I'm your minister and you're in my church and you say, look, I'm having these unwanted same-sex attractions to somebody and would you pray with me that that I don't act upon them? Would you pray with me that, that they don't continue, that they get less? If I said yes, I'd be breaking the law. We don't want that in New South Wales. And so that's why we're asking a question on Tuesday night about that very thing to our politicians in this room. But putting aside uh, politics, if you have an unwanted same-sex attraction, ask God to suppress it in exactly the same way that if you have an unwanted desire to commit adultery. If I feel like wanting to commit adultery, I'm going to pray to God, please take that desire away and make sure I don't act on it. Same is true for unwanted same-sex attraction. Well-known Christian author and writer Vaughan Roberts is a man who has publicly disclosed his own long-term struggle with same-sex attraction. Vaughan spoke earlier this year at CMS Summer School. He's written the book, God's Big Picture. We know of him well. He's the rector of an Anglican church in Oxford, England. And he's a same-sex attracted man. And he knows it's a temptation he must resist. 
And even though he has same-sex attractions, he doesn't self-identify as homosexual or gay. He's a man who has sexual desires he knows he must not act upon. And that's why he remains single and celibate. All of us need to be like him. We need to be committed to resisting the temptation to give into sexual desires and turn them into sexual immorality. We've got to resist the temptation of sexual immorality. So whether our sexual desires for someone of the opposite sex or the same sex, we mustn't turn those desires into actions. And likewise, if a married person, if as a married person you have sexual desire for someone who you're not married to, don't turn those desires into actions either. It's the same thing. That's what it's like for all of us, married or single, and no matter who it is you're attracted to. But why would we do that? Why wouldn't we listen to our hearts and follow our desires? Why wouldn't we do like we feel and fulfil our passions? Because we know that God's way is the best by far. And he made marriage and God knows marriage better than anyone. And so we know that when it comes to marriage matters, we know that to God marriage matters. And we can trust that sex within marriage is his good and wonderful design. And more than that, we know that when we fail or when we sin, God promises forgiveness if we truly repent and confess our sins to him. That is the good news of knowing Jesus. And that brings us something even better than sex. And that is salvation. Certainty for eternity. God who made sex is pro-sex and better than that, He's full of compassion and forgiveness to all who turn to him. And that is the greatest news anyone can ever have. We're going to finish now by singing our final song. He will hold me fast.